and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian Elfry, Spears Gilbert, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Derek Muller, Professor of Law at Pepperdine University Caruso School of Law. We will discuss his draft article, Weaponizing the Ballot. So welcome to the show, Derek. Uh, thanks for having me, Brian. Uh, it's my pleasure to have you on. This is a really interesting and very timely paper indeed. Um, so presidential tax disclosures have been in the news primarily because President Trump has adamantly refused to release any of uh, his tax documents. Um, but, but I was wondering if you could kind of place that decision on Trump's part in a broader historical context. Like sort of what is the history of presidential tax disclosures? When did presidents start making them? And what kinds of documents do presidents usually disclose? Sure. Well, I mean, the the history is a little varied and checkered about its past. And in fact, I use checkered deliberately. One of the great financial uh, disclosure uh, moments in American history happened after uh, then vice presidential candidate Richard Nixon's checkers speech uh, in 1952, where there were a lot of questions about how he got his money and what kind of contributions were being made to him. And he goes on television, uh, well, more radio, but also television, to give a famous speech talking about uh, about where his money came from and uh, what it was used for and how he's going to return some of the donations. But the one thing he won't give back is the dog checkers that he received in this process. So that's in the 50s. Um, and there have been occasional sort of moments where presidential candidates have disclosed their tax returns, wondering about the financial background. But this really comes to a point after Watergate in the 1970s. And so beginning in 1976, um, presidential candidates start to disclose at least some of their tax returns. Um, sometimes it's just one or two years worth of tax returns. Sometimes it's a summary. Sometimes it's extensive information tracing back for decades. Um, so this is once once a Republican or Democrat uh, becomes the presidential nominee, they'll usually do this. Sometimes they'll do it in the primary stages of, of the political process earlier in the campaign to sort of reveal some transparency. Others have sort of waited and held back to figure out whether or not they're going to get the nomination. Um, and it's it usually the Republicans and Democrats, independents like Ross Perot in 1992 never disclosed his tax returns. Um, minor party candidates are, are very inconsistent about their disclosures, too. Um, and then finally, when presidents serve in office, once they take office, um, everyone from 1980 until uh, 2016 disclosed their annual tax returns each year. It's usually around tax day. It's usually this little fanfare <laughs> disclosing their tax returns that they filed for that past year. So when we think about tax returns and disclosure, you know, the, the public sometimes is interested to know where these candidates are coming from, what their priorities are, what their background is, um, how authentic they can relate to the people, whatever it might be. Um, so there are various reasons why they might be disclosed and also various uh, traditions uh, surrounding the disclosures, too. Mm. Well, so President Trump has made it very clear, I think, that he's not going to be disclosing anything. Um, so on one level, you'd feel like this is kind of water to the bridge, like a moot point. If the president just says he's not going to do it, then it seems like he's just breaking with tradition, like Trump has seemed to have done in so many <laughs> different different ways. But but why is this question so pressing at the moment? Like sort of what's brought this refusal to disclose back into the news? Yeah, so it's it's I think it's it's an interesting sort of setup. So I think there's no question that um wealthy 
presidential candidates. And by wealthy, I'm not talking about the millionaires because pretty much every presidential candidate these days is a millionaire. I'm talking about the, the very wealthy. So folks like, um, you know, you know I, I think Ross Perot is a good example. Donald Trump is a good example. And we've, uh, we haven't seen tax disclosures from Tom Steyer or Mike Bloomberg on the Democratic side in, in the 2020 race yet. Um, I, I think there's uh, Carly Fiorina didn't disclose her tax returns in 2016. Uh, Mitt Romney was very reluctant to do so and then sort of disclosed two years worth of tax returns when he became the nominee. Um, I, I think there's a, there's a privacy concern with um, particularly wealthy candidates um, that they don't want to sort of disclose what their holdings are, where they are, how they're making their money. Maybe that should be concerning to Americans. Um, but, you know, they, they're also able to sort of disclose how they would govern, what their plans are. And, and there are certain things that we do require in terms of disclosure from candidates. Um, the, the, since Watergate, there are certain kinds of disclosures, financial disclosures that sitting presidents, sitting elected officials have to make. The Ethics and Government Act requires these kinds of disclosures. They're not tax returns, but you can go on the website and you can see the 90-page filing that President Trump made last year. Uh, at the same time, though, when, when, when a candidate or a sitting president like Donald Trump breaks from a longstanding tradition, um, it makes people concerned and reconsider, well, is this a tradition that's just sort of the political process, something that we sort of fight about in the media, that we talk about on the debate stage, that we hash out over op-eds, that we want to try to exert political pressure uh, or is this something that really has moved into a norm that requires some kind of legal authorization or maybe legal requirement to compel disclosure because disclosure is such an important value we have? And so I, I think because of the failure to disclose both as a candidate and as a sitting president, it, it's invigorated this sort of discussion about what it is we value in tax returns, and then what should the solution to this be? Should it just be more pressure? I mean, pressure doesn't seem to be getting to President Trump. <laughs> and if it's not, um, do we then resort to the legal process and figuring out, is there some way to compel that disclosure? And if we compel it, how would we go about doing it and what would it look like? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, it's my sense that there's almost this word, like in this moment of like electoral lawfare, almost in terms of trying to force President's Trump hand on this on this front, and in particular, you, you point to some moves that have been made by various states to try to compel Trump to disclose. Maybe you could talk a little bit about those proposals and how they're intended to work. Sure. Yeah. So I, I kind of move through in the paper a, a few different ways that states are considering compelling disclosure. So New York State has looked at some state-based solutions because um, President Trump filed his tax returns. Uh, to the state of New York, too, in addition to filing federal tax returns. So there have been some moves about how to disclose those. And, and there have been moves on the part of Congress, Congress seeking to get access to these and, and filing lawsuits in terms of subpoenas and, and access to records. Um, but the paper is really about a, a specific and different kind of proposal um, in this multi-pronged attack to gain access to his tax returns. And that's conditioning ballot access on the disclosure of tax returns. So when we refer to ballot access in the election context, you know, um, I, I sort of situate in this sort of big historical um, point that for a long time in the United States, there was no ballot except those that the people wrote. <laughs> you would show up at the polling place and you would write the name on a slip of paper and drop it into a box. Sometimes voting took place orally, um, but if you wrote it, you would sort of write it yourself. And so there's no state mechanism to control the ballot. But in the late 19th century, states start to say, you know, we don't like this because people are putting multiple ballots in a box. They're stuffing the ballot box. 
we don't like this because there's some intimidation because people are printing their own ballots and handing them out to people and they're watching you as you drop them into the ballot box or you're putting the right one into the wrong one. So the state takes over the mechanism of printing all of the names on the ballot and deciding then who's in and who's out. Um, so we can spend maybe time a little bit later talking about that. Um, but what that means is states come up with rules to decide who has access to the ballot. And so that usually means we want to make sure they're serious candidates. They're not frivolous. Uh, they have to meet some some deadlines so that we can print the ballot in time for everybody to get access to it, things like that. Um, so what states looked at in 2017 after after President Trump taken off, say, is there a way maybe where we could say, just like you have to get a number of signatures or you have to file by a particular date, that we say, you know what, you don't get to appear on the ballot unless you've disclosed your tax returns to us as the state. And we're going to make them available on the Internet. We're going to make them available for public viewing. Uh, and this is a way of sort of protecting our democratic process. This is a norm and tradition that we value. And we think that uh, you as a presidential candidate um, need to disclose this information before you get to get up here on the ballot, before the apparatus of the state sort of approves your your entry here. Um, so a lot of states came up with a variety of laws. They look, they're all over the map in some regards. They look at sometimes just one year's tax returns or up to five years of tax returns. Sometimes it's in the primary, sometimes it's the general election, sometimes it's both. Um, sometimes it forbids you from being a write-in candidate if you fail to disclose your tax returns. Sometimes it says uh, it's not just our presidential candidates, it's also our governor and our senators and our representatives and our mayors. So, so there are lots of ways that people are looking and, and sort of struggling with what is the norm, right? If we're saying disclosure of tax returns, all of a sudden the sort of political process has to get put into a statute and thinking about what are the things we really value and what kinds of conditions we would put on candidates before they appear on the ballot. So that's an interesting sort of discussion itself. And then uh, in New Jersey and California in 2017, they both passed statutes. They were both vetoed by their governors. And then last year, California reenacted the statute. It was approved by the governor um, requiring all presidential candidates to disclose five years worth of tax returns uh, as a condition of gaining access to the ballot. It also requires gubernatorial candidates to do it in the primary election, too. Um, and that law was struck down by both a federal court and a state court on constitutional law grounds. Um, so for, for different reasons. But I think that's that's where the states are right now, trying to figure out if we're going to compel this, what would it look like? What is the norm we have and, and what is the best way of doing it? And, and they've really latched on to this notion that conditioning access to the ballot would be the way to go to, to figure out how to compel disclosure. Right. Well, so it's my understanding that there's some qualifications for candidacy that are kind of unproblematically ones that states could impose as a kind of uh, – threshold for ballot access, but maybe others that are either kind of contextual or conditional as to whether or not they would be valid, and maybe some that would be invalid entirely. So I, mean, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how we should go about thinking about kind of taxonomizing these different kinds of qualifications and distinguishing ones that are legitimate from ones that are illegitimate. Yeah, I think as I started thinking about this paper, I said, oh, this is a pretty straightforward solution. Uh, you know, I don't think we, states can add qualifications to candidates uh, seeking a, a federal office. Uh, and then I realized, well, they can add certain conditions <laughs> to running for office. They can say your name has to appear on the ballot. You have to get a majority of the vote. So it, it made me really start to think about what the Constitution permits states to do and how we sort of sort those things out. So on the one hand are what we would define as qualifications, conditions for serving in the office. 
Um, so for the president, for the president, um, you know, we're familiar with those sort of basic qualifications of the Constitution. You have to be 35 years old, uh, a natural born citizen, a resident of the United States for the last 14 years, um, things like that. So there, there are these uh, qualifications. Everyone agrees are sort of part of the Constitution. Um, and, and at the founding, the recognition was that these were sort of fixed and defined by the Constitution, and states wouldn't be able to add to them. Now, this is not the, the unanimous consensus. There are some states that try to add conditions, especially for members of Congress. And, and so there's a little bit of inconsistency in the history there. Um, but in the, in the 1990s, there were some attempts of states to add qualifications to office by saying, uh, we want to enact term limits. Once you've served three terms in Congress, you're out. Um, we want somebody else in there. Or if not, you're out. Uh, you just can't appear on the ballot. We're going to make you run as a write-in candidate. And the Supreme Court in a case called U.S. Term Limits versus Thornton said, no, 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 the, the enumerated qualifications in the Constitution are exhaustive. They're exclusive. States cannot add to them. Um, so then there gets to be this interesting question that's raised about, well, uh, it might be a qualification, or maybe maybe we're not going to call it qualification. We'll call it ballot access rule. And it's true, right, that once the state takes over the printing of the ballot, as I talked about earlier, the state has to decide who's on and who's off. And the court has looked repeatedly at rules that say you have to get signatures from, you know, several thousand people before appearing on the ballot, meet the certain deadline. Um, courts have looked at those and they sort of go through a balancing test to figure out how severe the burden is on, on voters, the candidates. Um, but for the most part, they've approved those things by saying, well, these are just sort of regulating the, the means, the, the process of the, the election system. And the Constitution authorizes states to do that. States can control the manner of holding elections. They control the manner of appointing presidential electors. Um, so there, there's a different line of cases saying this different set of rules that does condition access uh, to candidates is permissible. So my goal was to try to figure out, well, what, what is the relationship between these two things? When does it move from sort of a permissible rule um, that's just sort of regulating the, the ballot access, regulating the manner of the election, to a rule that's impermissible, which is something that's a qualification, some kind of substantive rule that, that prevents you from serving in the office? Um, and I think the best way of thinking about it, and this is consistent with a long line of Supreme Court cases that articulate in different ways, are to think that, that states have control over manner of holding elections. And those manner rules are really about the integrity and reliability of the electoral process itself, or language from one Supreme Court case, or those that require a preliminary showing of substantial support. So I'll summarize those kind of two things briefly. Um, one is sort of the, the integrity and reliability of the electoral process itself, which is to say, you know, it, it, before you can show up, um, you have to file some kind of an affidavit or you have to register to vote or you have to engage in these processes to make sure that we're only casting one vote and we're verifying your identity. There are a lot of sort of things that we might look at as sort of these raw procedural rules that relate to how elections operate and run. And one of those things might also be we don't want frivolous candidates on the ballot. We don't want just anyone's name to appear on the ballot. And if that's the case, we have to sort of figure out rules about who's in and who's out. Uh, the second are requiring a preliminary showing of substantial support. And that that relates actually back to sort of the way it was at the founding, in a sense. We can have primaries, a primary election that you know, narrows the, the pool of candidates to say you're our party's standard bearer. You're the Republican nominee, you're the Democratic nominee. And then a second election says this is the general election. Now you all square off against each other. Or no one got a majority the first time around. You got a plurality of the vote. We're going to have a runoff and sort of a second time around. So you can think of some of these other rules like requiring signatures as sort of a stage before that, just like 
back in the 1800s, you would have had to have enough people write your name on the ballot to appear on the ballot, to appear on the, uh, or, or to win the election. Um, so these preliminary showing of substantial support rules are, again, sort of procedural rules that sort of are winnowing of the field, almost like a primary before the primary, to make sure that you're eligible to be on the ballot. So when I started looking at the rules this way, I started to realize that the best way of understanding manner restrictions are these ones related to procedural rules defined in sort of a specific way. And things that otherwise would condition your candidacy fall as additional qualifications, which exceed states' power under the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Well, so it's a complicated idea. And it seems to me that this was sort of at least part of the discussion that was animating the disagreement in the term limits case itself. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the kind of rationale for that decision and sort of why it came out the way that it did and what the dissenting judges thought that the majority got wrong and sort of why they took a different position. Yeah. So the term limits cases, so again, this is the 1990s, and these are really about congressional representatives, um, right? They're, they're members of the House, members of the Senate. It's not the president. So there are, there may be some reasons to think there's differences uh, between the two of them, but I argue in the paper, you know, the Constitution uses this phrase that states can control the manner of uh, electing members of Congress. They can control the manner of electing presidential electors. I think there's a reason to view those sort of um, together. And, and the court looks at the term limits case and says, well, on the one hand, you can't add qualifications to office, right? Just fundamentally forbidden. This is a, the majority of the court written by Justice Stevens. Yeah. And, and then when Arkansas comes back and says, no, 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 our, our, it's just conditioning ballot access. It's just a rule that conditions ballot access. The court says, well, you can't go about indirectly achieving what you're unable to achieve directly. If you can't add a qualification, you can't dress up that qualification in the guise of ballot access rules and call it something else, right? And a core element of this for the majority is states have no power under to, uh, to hold any kind of federal election unless the Constitution grants them that power. When they entered the Union in 1787, 1789, they, there were no federal offices, right? They didn't have the sort of residual authority to do whatever they wanted. Um, there's no Tenth Amendment claim here that states hold all this power point is that states come into the union and there's sort of a bunch of specific rules about how you hold federal elections because these are new offices and there's a new creation here. And as a result, we have to think about what it means, what what is given to the states, what kind of authority they do have. And the, the firm and abiding conviction we have from the framers is we don't want states or the federal government to be sort of constricting too much when it comes to voter choice. A lot of things need to be left to the voter. So we're going to have pretty minimal requirements in the Constitution. Does this mean that non-Christians like Jews and Muslim atheists can get elected? The court says yes. Does this mean that poor people who don't have enough money can get elected? And at the framing debates, they say yes. <laughs> These are open to everybody. These offices are open to everybody. Now, the dissenting justices, there were four justices in dissent in U.S. term limits, led by Justice Thomas. Um, and he said, look, the point is that these are the kinds of things that states are supposed to be able to do. The states are defining the scope of the electorate when they get to decide who's eligible to vote. And they can also decide the scope of the folks that they can cast ballots for. That is the candidates for office because these are representatives of their state. And particularly when a state is passing a ballot initiative and it's passing that initiative by the people, the people want this kind of thing is the argument the court went along with. Um, so again, the majority rejects that and the dissenting justices really rely on sort of the 10th Amendment or arguing that these were sort of powers that adhered within the states of the founding 
pointing to instances where some states at times, you know, added things like members of Congress have to reside in the district from which they're elected. There were a few of those statutes at the founding. They've sort of fallen away and they're not enforceable anymore because courts have looked and said, no, those are additional qualifications. You can't do it. Um, so for, at the end of the day, the majority wins. The majority says you can't add qualifications and the scope of your authority to control elections is defined by the Constitution. You don't have any sort of inherent residual authority. So if that's the case, states have to find some way of saying under the elections clause or the presidential elections clause um, that this is consistent with the manner of holding elections. And I would argue that these kinds of statutes, uh, in my view, would exceed that power under the manner of authority. Mm, I mean, do, do you think it's fair I mean, it, it, to kind of in some ways analogize to aspects of First Amendment doctrine? I mean, the sort of ar- the, the sort of argument you're pointing to struck me as being not totally dissimilar from the idea of like a time, place and manner restriction on speech being permissible, in part because it's not like distinguishing between different speakers so much as saying you sort of have to satisfy these basic ground rules in order to you know, be able to take advantage of this particular forum. But so long as you satisfy these kind of neutral rules, then you get to participate just like anyone else would participate. Um, yeah, so that's interesting. I, th- there's no question that uh, time, place, manner is a doctrine of First Amendment uh, that sounds a lot like the times, places, and manners of holding elections right, under the elections clause. Um, but there, there hasn't been a whole lot of uh, overlap, shall I say, between the two approaches and doctrines, um, at least th- that I've seen in some of the case law. Um, in my view, when we talk about manner restrictions or manner restrictions under the elections clause have a specific sort of pretty determined meaning to figure out what are these kinds of procedural rules about the electoral process itself that, that, that relate to its integrity and reliability. And the moment you start moving away from achieving those goals into saying these are sort of disfavored candidates, candidates who have failed to disclose their tax returns, um, that, in my view, moves away from sort of what we might say as would be a legitimate manner rule. So maybe a better way of thinking about it in the First Amendment context, if we're going to draw this analogy, is to say, well, the, the manner is, you know, well, uh, you, you, you can't be uh, – I'm going to be weak on this because I'm not as familiar <laughs> with the First Amendment argument here. Uh, picking up manner rules, you know, pro- prohibiting uh, folks from, from being in a park at night when there's a group that only wants to be in the park at night. You know, there are ways in which we sort of suss out, you know, the problem is when you're coming up with ostensibly neutral rules and yet the sort of target is picking on these disfavored groups. So part of that might be the, the fact that we're picking on it. It's obvious that we're picking on it. Um, and, and in this case, we might say, well, no, it's neutral. We want anyone who's disclosed their tax returns. Anyone gets on the ballot. So we don't really care about who you are or, or what your interest is. But the point is there's this there's this group, and it's, it's not just President Trump. It's a number of Democratic, Green Party, Libertarian nominee candidates who don't want to disclose their tax returns. And so the question is then, is that sort of an appropriate burden placed upon them by the state? In my view, it sort of exceeds the state's view, the state's power. Right. So if I understand it, then the sort of the counter argument would be that, well, we're just saying you have to disclose your tax returns and anyone can disclose your tax returns. So anyone can avoid the restriction. But your point would be that as a practical matter, it's not actually true that everyone's similarly situated with respect to disclosure of tax returns. And therefore, this requirement is actually 
imposing a burden on some candidates that it's not imposing on other candidates. Right. Yes, absolutely. Because there are certain things that everybody can do. So requirements that you have to reside in the state or or reside in a a congressional district before the election. Um, There's those have been struck down. You can move to the district not required. Um, there were in the 1960s, it was common for states to pass statutes requiring you to take an oath that you will not overthrow the government of the United States. <laughs> seems, seems pretty minimal burden, right? To, 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 to check a box on the, on the paperwork. And yet there were some communist or socialist candidates who didn't want to check that box and courts struck that down. It doesn't matter how easy it is to comply. The point is there are some people, there are some candidates who just don't want to do it, don't have to do it and shouldn't be required to do it because it exceeds the bounds of the state authority. Now, if people want to make that a political issue, if people want to throw a fit and say on a televised debate, or in a full-page newspaper ad or through some kind of targeted Facebook post, boy, you know what? They, they, they fail to disclose their tax returns. They fail to take this oath. They fail to say that they're not going to overthrow the government of the United States. They, they don't even live in this congressional district. That happens all the time. Those kinds of arguments can be made. But my argument is that's left to the political process, right? It, it has nothing to do with whether or not the candidate is eligible to appear on the ballot. And if that's the case, it simply exceeds the state's authority under the ballot. Mm. Well, so where do you see things going forward from here? I mean, is California still trying to push this law at all? And are other states talking about or contemplating the possibility of adopting similar kinds of uh, obligations for disclosure for ballot access? And there are like alternative approaches that might be at least potentially better designed to avoid some of the problems that you've been identifying? Yeah. So California, again, because it faced um, both federal and state law um, grounds on which its statute was struck down, it's going to have to go back to the drawing board to decide whether it wants to try again. Um, about 20 or 25 states have introduced legislation and we're in a new legislative term in some states. So we'll see if, if, if what comes back uh this winter and spring, as, as states go back to the drawing board to reenact statutes, um, they've uh, they've commonly passed in one house. Uh, places like uh, Connecticut, uh, New York, it's advanced. New Jersey, Hawaii, it's made progress in a number of jurisdictions. But for a lot of states, it's also like a wait and see. If we don't have to be the one to pass it, once one state passes it, you have access to all their tax returns if the candidates disclose it. Um, so I think there's a little bit of a wait and see attitude. There's also an issue if, it, if we're concerned about President Trump in particular, because the November 2020 election is coming up pretty quickly. <laughs> and if states don't enact it pretty quickly, um, there's a chance in which maybe maybe the issue becomes less of a concern. That is, if other candidates comply with sort of the political practice, uh, maybe states won't enact it. At the same time, I think a lot of states are looking at this for gubernatorial candidates, for federal offices, for other offices, and it might still sort of have some legs in other areas. So we'll see what happens uh, in, in the future. I, w- I would expect some states to make a push this spring um, like they have in the last few years and like they've done successfully in a few jurisdictions, but we'll see. Um, but there are other solutions, and I point out in the paper, I think this is an important thing just because um, there's not a way of doing this legally through the elections clause, the presidential electors clause. If you're dissatisfied with the political process route, look for other legal routes, right? So one is to say there are potentially opportunities to amend the Ethics and Government Act, which requires financial disclosures from federal officers and require more disclosure information. If you don't like the 90 pages of financial disclosures that President Trump made 
um, under the Ethics and Government Act, then go amend the act, right? Go amend the thing that says this is our federal statute to, to prevent bribery, to prevent corruption, to figure out what conflicts of interest lie in the government. Um, amend that statute. So there's a lot of other arguments about what Congress's appropriate scope of authority is uh, to regulate such things. But I, I just want to emphasize that if there's not one avenue under the ballot access rules, don't, don't rule out both the political process and alternative legal avenues. So I leave those as sort of options in the paper um, because I, I really want to emphasize sort of the appropriate scope of, of ballot access rules, of state power to control elections, without getting too bogged down in the specifics of any one temporary dispute about tax returns or whatever it might be. Mm, mm. Well, so, so Derek, in closing, I, I mean, I, I have to admit that, I mean, this ballot access approach does seem to have been a kind of, you know, effort to achieve a, a desired outcome in a particular case by any means necessary, almost as it were. Um, but, but I wonder if you think that this kind of dispute tells us anything more broadly about ballot access rules in general. In other words, sort of how should we think about states sort of regulating the electoral process and thinking about ballot access? And what, if anything, should this tell us about, you know, when it's legitimate for them to do so and when it's not and sort of how they should think about their role in regulating the electoral process in relation to who actually shows up on the ballot in the first place? Yeah. So I think I emphasize in the paper that um, tracing back to these cases like the oath cases of congressional residency requirements to term limits to tax returns to future disputes. I mean, whether it's uh, requiring birth certificates or requiring disclosure of medical records of septuagenarian candidates or their uh, you know, collegiate transcripts or whatever it might be, there's a variety of places in which uh, you might say the state has some interest in sort of exerting pressure and leverage and preventing candidates from getting access to the ballot. But sort of my broader takeaway is that we really need to reconsider sort of what ballot access rules at their heart are. They're not just sort of the state implementing its preferred policy objectives, right? They're not just weapons of the legislature to say, comply with our demands or you fail to get on the ballot, even if some of them are fairly easy to comply with. Um, the point is that our ballot access rules really ought to be thought of as this sort of um, opportunity for the state to help streamline the election and provide opportunity for the voters to make the preferred candidate of their choice, the selection on the ballot on election day. And and to the extent that state laws, you know, we think a lot, or at least a lot of election law scholars think a lot of the burdens placed on voters, on the ability to, to cast a vote, which is an important concern when it comes to voter registration or voter identification. But on the flip side, if there's not the candidates or you prevent the candidates from appearing on the ballot, you're also really significantly impacting the right to vote, the opportunity of voters to choose who they want rather than who the state wants them to pick. Um, so I situated in this broader way of thinking about ballot access rules as truly procedural and trying to avoid the sort of substantive state preferred choices that would otherwise condition the opportunity of, of candidates to get on the ballot. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show, Derek. It was a really fun and timely paper, and uh, it really helped me better understand the nature of this dispute and disputes over ballot access more broadly. Thank you, Brian. It was a real pleasure. <laughs> Files 
some on rights and some on wrongs Prefer their own reflections The people's rights demand our song The right of free elections Law and order be the state with freedom and protection All stand by the ballot box for fair and free elections 